Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie Podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. as your canvas, a knife is your paintbrush, and blood is your medium. That, in a nutshell, is Italian giallo cinema. Like film noir before it, giallo has its roots in crime fiction. But American film noir was a black and white landscape where moral ambiguity thrived, characters spoke in terse exchanges, and plots were intricately laced with deception and betrayal. Giallo, by contrast, was all about garish, blood-splattered images, an excess of just about everything, and scripts that seem more concerned with sensory overload than in laying out a solvable whodunit. The word giallo translates literally as yellow, but it became synonymous with a particular style of literary thriller that got its name from the cheap yellow covers of the novels published in Italy in the 1950s and 60s. Being Italian, I feel comfortable saying that giallo films reflect certain Italian traits, most notably going big and with a heightened sense of emotion. Giallo is noir, reimagined in oversaturated colors and filtered through the hyperbolic language of opera, which of course was born in Italy. And if we want to reach further back in history, you could say giallo draws on Italian culture's fascination with violence that goes back to the blood sport of the Colosseum and the powerful presence of the Catholic Church, whose epicenter is located in the heart of Rome. The repressive influence of the Catholic Church provides the kind of authority that just invites rebellion and resistance. So the two most defining features of giallo, sex and violence, are intertwined in complex ways with Italy's cultural core. Giallo also turns to France to draw on the Grand Guignol style of theater for a healthy dose of lurid violence and disturbing themes. You'll also notice the influence of Edgar Allan Poe, gothic horror, and Alfred Hitchcock in creating an atmosphere of dread and psychological horror. Appreciating giallo is important in understanding the evolution of genre cinema, and its roots reflect filmmakers dealing with social changes and upheavals through their art. It's easy to dismiss giallo as mere exploitation or as lurid and misogynistic, but that's only if you're looking at it in passing or on the surface. But giallo represents a challenge and a provocation to repressive social norms and to cinematic expectations. It deliberately and slyly pushed people's buttons with its explicit violence, perverse sexuality, pulsing scores, and over-the-top style. It turned exploitation into art and seduced us with the beauty of horror. Basically, killing it with style. Italian giallo cinema is something everyone needs to experience, at least once. It consumes you like a fever dream and assaults your senses with an audacious excess of style. The reason for focusing on gialli right now is that the ability to screen them theatrically has just gotten easier. AGFA, or the American Genre Film Archives, just made a set of beautifully restored giallo DCP prints available for theatrical distribution. I'll be co-presenting a quartet of titles as part of a series called A Giallo Affair at Digital Gym Cinema. We'll be screening What Have You Done to Solange, Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key, Don't Torture a Duckling, and Death Laid an Egg. These will screen on Sundays at 4 p.m. and Mondays at 9 p.m. through October. For this podcast on Giallo, Killing It with Style, I speak with Brett Berg of AGFA, 
Troy Howarth, author of two volumes on Giallo cinema, So Deadly, So Perverse, with a third volume on the way. And Rachel Nisbet, who runs Hypnotic Crescendos, a blog dedicated to Giallo and Italian genre cinema. First, a quick chat with Brett Burke, theatrical sales director and a bit of a film detective at AGFA. I asked him what AGFA is doing to make films like the ones we're screening more readily available. Our theatrical program on this level started at the beginning of the year when we partnered with a number of home video labels, and those would be Severin, Arrow, Vinegar Syndrome, and Cult Epics. And these are all you know companies that are in the business of restoring classic genre films and putting them out on Blu-ray, on home video. So over the years, as someone who was also an exhibitor and putting together film shows on the ground level, I would often go to these labels and say, hey, do you have this or that film uh, available? And do you have a print of it? Do you have the rights to it? A lot of times, as a, as a film detective, when you're an exhibitor, there's really no other place to go. And sometimes they would say, yes, we have this and we have a print, or yes, we have this, but there's no print, or yes, we have a print, but we don't have the rights. It was just this, this confusing matrix all the time. And now that I'm in distribution, I know what the exhibitor goes through in order to try to figure out how to show some of these rarer but still really awesome like horror and exploitation films. So AGFA has sort of corralled all the theatrical rights together from these home video labels to become a clearinghouse, a one-stop shop for genre film booking. And the, the films that we're showing with Digital Gym in San Diego, they all come from the Arrow home video label. They're in the UK. And if anyone wanted to you know, book a film from them in the United States, it was always this protracted process of not knowing who to get in touch with and then maybe the request finding the right desk at Arrow. So now it's just really simple for people to uh, email us or phone us and say, hey, I want this film on this date. And we go, okay, it's this much, kind of taking the confusion out of the process for a lot of people. When you're a film booker, oftentimes the one thing you don't have is time, which you will need to research some of these things more properly if you really want to show them. So I think that the greatest thing that ACT is doing is just making this entire process a little easier on the exhibitor. Now, with the Giallo films, I've, I grew up with some of them because I grew up in the 60s and 70s and got to see some of them theatrically. But trying to find some later on after they've originally come out, I've had to sit through some magenta-colored prints and <laughs> some really bad-looking stuff. And with Giallo in particular, color seems so important. And so having these restored ones that you guys are distributing is just amazing. They look like 3D without the glasses. <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're really spectacular uh, restorations, again, done by Arrow. Uh, yeah, the color in these films is so important. Uh, I just uh, I just saw Suspiria, the Dario Argento film, which uh, played here in Los Angeles at Beyond Fest in a brand-new 4K restoration that uh, the label Synapse, I think, worked for five years on. And, uh, yeah, I, the comparison between seeing that in a kind of Willy Wonka, vibrant, insane color, and seeing a film that's kind of like through a macaroni and cheese filter, there's a, there's a distinct difference, and I'm really happy that we're able to... Well, basically, we're piggybacking on a lot of the restorations that these companies are doing for home video, and I, I think it's a really neat thing that we can get these films out to the public, not only in support of these home video releases, but hopefully in perpetuity, 
you know, the, the part of the fun of, of going out to the theater to watch a genre film is to discover something because a lot of these films just don't play on theater screens or haven't for a long time. And yeah, the fact that they're in pristine condition will definitely give people, I think, an extra edge when, when, when choosing an event to go out to and then also, you know, getting that hit of discovery off it. Seeing it with an audience, like being able to see, have a whole theater kind of respond to something that's very kind of visceral or that's, you know, got a jump scare or something is always 10 times more fun than watching them on a small screen at home by yourself. Uh, yeah, the theatrical experience just simply can't be replicated at home. I know we all have really big TVs, and some of us even have projectors to get an image larger than what a TV would give you. But there's something about, again, going back to discovery, there's something about the discovery of a twist and turn of a movie with an audience that, uh, you know, we're, and humans are social creatures. So we're predisposed to having these reactions in a group, and I just think that we all need to kind of get together with our fellow filmgoers more often than not. I'm glad that you're showing these movies because uh, if you don't, who will? Well, and it's also interesting. Recently there was, I think, an article about how what's the fate of classic cinema and old movies because Netflix doesn't have a large catalog of them anymore. And there was a study about millennials not caring about classic movies. But it does seem like there's a segment of the population and also companies that are helping to kind of fill this need. But it seems like there are these small cinemas and places that are interested in trying to keep that kind of classic cinema alive and cult cinema and and get them into theaters and get them on a big screen so people can experience them sometimes for the first time like that. Yeah, I I happened to be uh, traipsing through Hulu last night. And uh, they have a classic section, just like Netflix has a classic section. So immediately I go to it, uh, trying to figure out, oh, is there like a 50s musical I could watch tonight or maybe even an 80s comedy? And uh, nothing from those decades was really in there. And there were uh, like mainstream studio thrillers from 2006 in the classic section. So the reason why millennials aren't going out to classic films is because they don't know they exist because their primary methods of seeing films like Netflix and Hulu don't have them anymore. So it's up to theaters to play them because that is pretty much the only way that anybody's ever going to get to see them anymore unless you buy the Blu-ray. Now, we are showing the Giallo films that you have. So do you remember the first Giallo film you ever saw and, and if it had an impact on you? I actually came to horror movies and suspense movies quite late. I would say that the first Giallo I saw was actually probably... 10 years ago, so I would have been in my mid-20s, and it was Suspiria. Actually, a combination of Suspiria and Deep Red, both by Dario Argento, because I was in a, an occasional band with some musician friends where we would do horror movie tribute sets. Mm-hmm. So the, the way that I got into these films is really the music. And I think that's, for most people, that's what anchors them in Giallo's is these intense soundtracks from both composers and rock bands, sometimes working together. So that was really my entry point into it was not as a, not as a kid, not as like a young film fan, but as a kind of snobbish, high fidelity video store clerk film fan. And to this day, the music remains some of my favorite stuff about the films. Yeah, that's where I really lose myself in the films is in the soundtrack. Goblin. 
they did those Argento films. That those soundtracks were so intense and glorious. Yeah, there's a I believe there's a special feature on the DVD of Suspiria, like from I don't know late '90s, early 2000s, and it's a behind-the-scenes clip from '77. Dario Argento's in a like a like a post-production facility as they're making the movie, and he's gesturing at the screen and saying, "Okay, and now in this part we bring up." The Goblin, and he's really excited and triumphant about it. And to him, those that the music represented some of the best parts of the movie too. Well, we had a great experience here in San Diego, where at uh, UCSD, I think it was the MFA students in the music department decided to play the Goblin score live to a screening of Suspiria in this state-of-the-art theater that had been built there that was like perfect for sound. And I remember the timpani drums that come up at the beginning and you could feel it like come up through the floor and up through like your body. And it was like, I got goosebumps watching it with that. So um, is there anything else you guys are having your archives that you're excited about coming up? Big piece of film history that was lost is now found. It's a film called Take It Out and Trade from 1970, and it is the final directorial effort from Ed Wood. You know, Ed Wood of Plan 9 from Outer Space and Glenn or Glenda, and, uh, you know, the subject of the 90s biopic with Johnny Depp. So his final film was considered lost since the 70s and has only had one and a half screenings uh, as of now because it was uh, it was never screened back in the day and then in 2014 a really rough VHS bootleg showed up somewhere and was screened at Anthology Film Archives in New York so we have we have located the only known film materials and now Agfa is uh, has restored and owns outright the final Ed Wood movie Take It Out and Trade and we premiered it at Fantastic Fest a few weeks ago in Austin, and we're going to be rolling that out, I think, in May of next year. All right. Well, your job sounds like a lot of fun to be this these film detectives. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a hell of a lot of work, but it is uh, a lot of fun. There's great rewards to it. That was Brett Berg of American Genre Film Archives. Next up is Troy Howarth, who's working on his third volume of So Deadly, So Perverse, A History of Giallo Cinema. I began our conversation by asking him if he remembered the first Jello he had ever seen. Well, the the very first Jello I ever saw was actually long before I knew what a Jello was. Back in the eighties, when I was growing up, uh, late night TV they used to run a lot of European horror movies and whatnot. At that time, I was so young I really had no idea of you know the concept of it being a foreign movie or being dubbed or anything like that, but. There were some films that came on late at night that definitely stood out as being a little bit weirder (laughs) than the rest. And uh, one of them was The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave. And uh, that would have been my very first one. I don't know what kind of an impression it made on me at the time. It certainly would have been cut the ribbons uh, on late night TV. Uh, You know, pretty much all the the good stuff was gone. But... uh, that was the first one I, I ever saw, as far as I can recall. Not long after that, I also would have seen the American version of Dario Argento's Phenomena, which was 
cut down pretty severely by about a half hour or more and retitled as creepers in the U.S. So those were my first ones. As to the term giallo, I started, I guess, reading the Encyclopedia of Horror Films, I saw the term, but I had no idea what it was. I wouldn't have known how to, how to pronounce it or anything like that. So it kind of stood out in, uh, in my mind as something to explore a little bit more later on. But in the 80s and into the 90s, a lot of these movies were not easy to get a hold of. I think that's something that we're almost sort of spoiled for choice these days. So many of these films are readily available now, and we can see really nice copies of them. Uh, it's not the same thing as back in the days of, you know, ordering a VHS for $30 and getting it in the mail, and sometimes it wasn't even subtitled, uh, let alone uncut or right aspect ratio or anything like that. So uh, although I saw a few of these movies early on, I didn't really get to see sort of the cream of the crop until much later on. So after you got to see some more Giallo and got to appreciate it as kind of a whole, what is it about Giallo that you love? There are a lot of things that I love about these films. One of them, they're, they're very specifically of a time specifically the 60s through the early 80s, they're still being made. There are still some people who are making them in Italy. Uh, I'm not talking about the kind of um, meta-giallo-type films like Amer and uh, The Strange uh, Color of Your Body's Tears. Those are sort of art house uh, tribute movies. Uh, There are still people, obviously Dario Argento isn't very active at this point, but uh, you know, into the 21st century, he's still made them, but they're not quite the same uh, these days. There's a lot of things that have changed as far as censorship and as far as what audiences um, embrace and what they're willing to accept. They're just part of a time where there were there was something very, very lurid and very sensationalized about these films, which is very appropriate because they came from really basically the the content and also the artwork of pulp thrillers that were published in Italy. The, the books and the stories and so forth that are known as giallo books or gialli, uh, the plural in Italy, uh, basically came from these uh, uh, lurid sort of pulp thrillers, although some of them were conventional old-school Agatha Christie-style stories, too. But they all were published in these uh, uh, editions that had a yellow or giallo slipcover or cover. And uh, basically, the artwork on the front, was always very lurid. It was usually a woman in, you know, sort of lingerie being terrorized by a man with a big knife. Uh, obvious symbolism there and, and very, very lurid. And the films capture that. Uh, the, the best of them are not only lurid, but they're also very, very stylish, self-consciously stylish. And I think another interesting thing about them, which is very off-putting for a lot of people, I, I've always said that a lot of people who are really uh, into the sort of classical Agatha Christie style of thriller or even the Alfred Hitchcock style of, of mystery film where there's a great deal of emphasis placed on logic. They have a hard time with these films because although they kind of pay lip service to logic in these films, by and large, they're movies where logic really does go out the window. Uh, they, they, uh, they will pull very improbable plot developments out of the hat in the last second. And I think that's part of the fun. But that's something that's extremely off-putting for a lot of people. Another aspect that I really, really love is the music. Uh, Most Jallo films have either good soundtracks or exceptionally good soundtracks. And to tell you the truth, it's not uncommon to see a Jallo film that maybe isn't all that great as a film, but the soundtrack will stay with you for days and days. So those are some of the elements that really stand out for me. 
Now, you not only love Jello, but you've written two volumes on it. Uh, the title is So Deadly, So Perverse. Why did you feel that was an appropriate title to kind of cover this genre? Oh, it just, you know, it was one of those titles that sometimes you struggle to come up with a good title, and uh, I didn't there. That came to me very quick. Uh, for one thing, it, it refers to a couple of specific titles. There was an Umberto Lenzi movie called So, so, uh, so Sweet, So Perverse, and there was a uh, Jello, not a very good one from the 70s with Farley Granger called um, So Sweet, So Dead. So deadly, perverse, violence, sex, these are very key components in a Jello film, so it just seemed to fit it like a black leather glove, so to speak. <laughs> yes. Now, you mentioned that Giallo comes from these lurid novels that were had these yellow covers. So in a sense, it's a bit like noir in the sense that kind of the roots for this film genre come out of fiction and kind of a crime fiction. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, noir is a very good uh, thing to bring up because, you know, nothing is created in a vacuum. So it's always been kind of a progression from the kind of classical Agatha Christie drawing room uh, style of thriller, uh, then you get into the noir stuff, and then you get like the Edgar Wallace creamy films of uh, the 19, uh, late 50s through the 60s and 70s, the creamy films, uh, crime films, uh, then led into the Jallo films, which then in, a, in effect led into the slasher. So it all is kind of a continuous progression. Um, they all in a way kind of built on each other, although certain aspects became emphasized or dropped altogether depending on which particular subgenre you're talking about. But it all does kind of have its roots in literature, of course. Uh, that That's definitely true. You mentioned briefly about style, and giallo is really a genre that seems to be completely drunk on style. Because this is for radio, talk a little bit about what makes these films kind of look the way they do, and what is it about them that's kind of so striking? It's a hard thing to put into words. It's one of those things where sometimes, you know, the words don't always do it justice, but the the giallo on film, uh, I'm, I'm talking about as far as actual films that were released into theaters and were distributed all over, uh, in some cases internationally, uh, got its start in the early 60s, 1963, with the release of Mario Bava's film, The Girl Who Knew Too Much. Uh, which was obviously kind of a Hitchcock pastiche and parody. You know, the title gives that away. But that was a black and white film. But then after that, Bava made a film called Blood and Black Lace. A house of high fashion. A dazzling whirl of elegance, of exotic, extravagant beauties. An adventurous journey into the devastating allure of the most sophisticated women and their intimate secrets. Suddenly, these lace curtains ignite a drama that will lacerate your emotions. Blood and black lace. <coughs> who is this shrouded, sadistic, sordid fiend who maims and murders? Why this bloodthirsty orgy, this holocaust of lives? Blood and black lace in bleeding color. For shattering, shivering, shocking experience. And that was in 1964 and was 
completely ahead of the curve in terms of what people were used to seeing at that time in terms especially of the violence. Even to this day, it's a very physically visceral and violent film. Uh, it's not that the gore is necessarily convincing. In fact, I think he really went out of his way to make it look uh, a little bit stylized and phony, but it, there's a physicality to the killings in that film, a physicality that is extremely disturbing, and it still is to this day. So in a sense, it all kind of starts with Bava, and if, you, if you're familiar with Bava's films, you know that style was very, very key there. And He had a, a comment one time that... Uh, Photography in a horror film is 70% of the effectiveness because it creates all the atmosphere. And I think that's absolutely true. You can get away with a weak script in a horror film uh, as long as you pay attention to the atmospherics and the style, the look of the film. Are the compositions interesting to the eye? Is the use of color interesting and so forth? Um, he understood that very, very well. So with his early attempts in the Jallo, uh, he kind of set a template a little bit as far as use of color and use of very, in a way, it could almost turn into bad taste if it were not so tastefully executed, if that makes any sense. Uh, he was a man of great taste, so he knew how to make films that were stylized to an extreme, uh, women wearing makeup and hairstyles that are just impossibly <laughs> in some respects, impossibly over the top and, and very, very stylish and very uh, sort of haute couture. But it worked because he had an innate sense of style. Inevitably, a lot of the other people that followed in his footsteps didn't always get that. And so sometimes the films do end up looking very tacky and, and extremely dated. Uh, I don't necessarily think that Baba's films look dated, uh, although they're very much of their period. Good taste doesn't really go out of style, and I think that was something that, that he understood, and certainly that Dario Argento, who came after him, understood as well. It's down to the use of color, very strong contrasts of uh, colored lighting, uh, reds, greens, uh, blues, yellows, appropriately for a giallo, and um, costuming that's very uh, chic and stylish. Very important to emphasize that most giallo films really are uh, sort of focused on well-to-do people, the jet set, um, the upper class, they usually deal with upper class perverts and deviants. Uh, you're, you're not going to see a kitchen sink jello where it's sort of set um, among the, the sort of poor and disenfranchised. You get close to that with the Lucio Fulci's great film, Don't Torture a Duckling, uh, which is a very regional film and is set in a very poor uh, mountain village. But at the same time, while you have all that sort of poverty and decay there, you also have Barbara Boucher walking through the film looking absolutely stunning. So it's kind of a contrast between the two things. It, it's all that attention to glamour, uh, sexiness, uh, style, the, the very carefully choreographed lighting and camera work. It just creates something that is completely unlike what you see. I'm not one of these people who dislikes modern cinema by any stretch of the imagination. I think there are always good films coming out. But more and more when I go to see films, I just find myself thinking that most filmmakers have forgotten how to make a really good-looking movie. You mentioned Hitchcock. What were some of the influences that were felt on the Giallo films? What were some of these Italian directors kind of watching or reading that kind of influenced those early films? Well, Hitchcock obviously was, was a huge influence. Um, Fritz Lang, I would say. Uh, Robert Siodmak, uh, who was a, another great German director who came over to Hollywood 
there was a big influx of German directors who came to Hollywood in the 30s and 40s for obvious reasons. And uh, people like uh, Siodnak, uh, Billy Wilder, um, uh, Fritz Lang, and, and various others had um, a very fatalistic kind of point of view that came across in their movies. And I'm sure it was influenced a lot by some of the things that they had been through. So the the film noir films that we think of of the '40s, the great ones, obviously like Double Indemnity, um, you know, and and uh, the Lady from Shanghai, and and uh, the Spiral Staircase. The Spiral Staircase really is one of the huge influences in many respects. That that is that is a film that doesn't get discussed as much as it should in this context because so much of it is there. The the uh, the claustrophobic setting, the storm raging outside the uh, assorted characters behaving strangely, close-ups of eyes, very stylized lighting, a, a psycho, uh, a psychosexual killer on the loose. It's all there in 1946. So a lot of those things came from those movies. Uh, again, obviously Hitchcock was almost a genre unto himself uh, in, in the same way that we talk about Jallo films. A lot of people almost talk about Hitchcock as kind of a genre because he... He perfected the suspense film in many respects. So films like uh, Psycho and also Clouseau's Diabolique, which Diabolique was a huge influence on a period of Jallo films in the late 60s through the early 70s, uh, movies that I call sexy Jally. Those are movies that are more kind of dealing with uh, psychologically fragile characters being driven mad by unscrupulous villains as opposed to the body count movies that Bava popularized. Well, I shouldn't say popularized because it wasn't popular at the time, but uh, kind of created with blood and black lace. So those those were definitely huge influences on the genre. And the Edgar Wallace creamy films uh, produced by Rialto beginning in 1959, and they really continued through the early 1970s. As a matter of fact, a couple of... Um, Jallo films were co-produced by the company Rialto Film in Germany. And so these Jallo films were sold in Germany as Edgar Wallace Creamies. And so films like um, Seven Bloodstained Orchids and What Have You Done to Solange and Double Face were sold in Germany as creamy films. So it all kind of, you know, the circle of influences really closed in perfectly in that sense. You mentioned that Mario Bava's first film, The Girl Who, or first of these Giallo films, The Girl Who Knew Too Much, was black and white. A lot of the films you mentioned, Psycho and Diabolique, are black and white films. So being Italian, I want to say that it seems like the Italians went to, to kind of be influenced by these films and suddenly go like, wait a minute, black and white isn't quite stylish or flamboyant enough. This is the country of opera, and like we have mm-hmm. to just go bigger. <laughs> and it just feels like they needed to add their own flavor to those films and and kind of like that's what helped make this genre oh, unique. Absolutely. I mean, The Girl Who Knew Too Much is a very good film and it's it's a nice little it's a light film. It's actually a very uh lighthearted movie, uh especially compared to what happened. Uh in in a way, it almost feels a little bit quaint and uh it it's beautifully shot in black and white. I mean, uh, Bava really understood lighting you know, altogether, whether it was color or black and white. But he definitely, I think, really came into his own as he embraced color. I mean, uh, Black Sunday was the first feature that he directed entirely by himself. And uh, it's one of the most gorgeous-looking black and white movies. But then he follows it up with a widescreen color movie in Hercules and the Haunted World, which, you know, 
it may have its script problems, but that film is absolutely gorgeous to look at from beginning to end. And one of the things that's really inspiring about his movies is the fact that he was really working with very, very primitive means. Um, he really put his years of training on the job, so to speak, as a cinematographer and a special effects artist to great use by, you know, he was able to make movies on a dime that looked like they were a million dollars. And that was an extraordinary thing that really kept him very much in demand. Um, so, yeah, I, the color definitely helped to kick the Jallo up to another degree um, in the same way the, the early creamy films were in black and white. And then once they saw what the Italians were doing with color, they kind of realized, well, maybe it's time that we do this too. So they started doing films in, in this kind of similar uh, Baroque color scheme as well. So again, that, that mutual influence was being felt there too. And because these films came out of Italy, Italy is a very Catholic <laughs> country. It's also a country where... You know, they had the Colosseum and these violent games and they're where we associate the mafia. How do all these things kind of swirl together to influence Giallo and, and kind of lend it a particularly Italian feel? I think Lucio Fulci, uh, who was one of the, the great masters of, of this genre, had a, a good quote. Uh, people refer to it all the time. He said, uh, violence is Italian art. And, uh, you know, it's true enough. It goes back all the way, as you mentioned, to the days of the Colosseum, uh, the sort of, you know, feeding the Christians lions sort of thing. It, it, it is, uh, as you say, it is Catholic country, um, although the, uh, the religious conviction and attitude of some of the filmmakers was, was very ambiguous. Uh, Bava described himself, for example, as being more of a, more of a pagan at heart, although his sister was a mother superior in a church, so he was, he was also very superstitious. Um, I don't know much about Dario Argento being a particularly religious person. Lucio Fulci was, was very ambivalent about religion, as you can see in Don't Torture a Duckling, for example. So uh, there is that kind of notion, I guess, of something that is so much a part of the culture that it's almost force-fed to you, and that can result in um, rebellion. Uh, people get tired of, of the dogma being sort of jammed down their throats. So sometimes they were able to work that through in their art. Um, the the emphasis on the the very glamorous aspects, the uh, the sexual aspects, and so forth, and the violence. I mean, it's all it sort of comes together in a very explosive way, and it's something that uh, you know inevitably sometimes people find these films to be. Uh, misogynistic, and I can understand that. I think it's probably true in some cases, although I would not describe, uh, for example, Mario Bava as being a misogynist filmmaker. I, I think he actually frequently had very interesting and well-delineated female characters in his films. Uh, Lucio Fulci was notoriously... Um, I don't know if it's even accurate to say he was misogynistic. I think he was misanthropic in many respects. I don't think he really liked people very much. Um, but you'll you'll see female characters in his films that are very sympathetically drawn, so it's not a constant. And I'd say the same thing with Argento. If in Bird with the Crystal Plumage the female characters aren't terribly well drawn, uh, that's not true of his later films. And frequently, by the time you got to something like Deep Red, for example, really it's Daria Nicolodi who saves the day in many respects. She's the one who really pulls David Hemmings out of the fire, literally at one point. Uh, so there's this kind of 
battle of the sexes things going on, which again, it, coming from a very traditional Catholic country where I'm sure at that time there was a tendency to sort of think of women as being subservient and, uh, you know, they should know their place kind of a thing. Uh, some of these films actually were rather progressive in their views, even if they, you know, inevitably for the sake of exploitation, they also objectified the females as well. Uh, at the very least, very often they gave them a real active role in the story instead of just making them the shrieking villain or uh, victims all the time. Well, and there are quite a few giallo with female serial killers. <laughs> <clears throat> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And Argento obviously had that quite a few times. Um, so, I mean, again, it's, they, they are cast in different ways. You'll have uh, female sleuths. I mean, it goes all the way back to The Girl Who Knew Too Much. The title says it all. Uh, Leticia Roman in that film is an, an extremely likable and resourceful and capable heroine. Uh, John Saxon, as the Italian sort of macho doctor, thinks that he needs to save her. But he's the one who always ends up getting himself hurt, <laughs> and he's always injuring his hand and uh, being made to look silly in many respects, whereas she's quite capable. So I think some of the knee-jerk reaction against these films, as is often the case, is based on a kind of sketchy and generic understanding of them as opposed to looking at them more seriously and more in-depth. And what would you say are kind of the staples of a giallo? What are the things that... Not to necessarily look to the stereotypes, but what are the kind of things that people might associate with these films as being very key to defining what they are? Well, you know, I think one of the big things is definitely an emphasis on very stylized uh, murder set pieces. Um, it's been said that especially a film like Deep Red almost plays, the murder scenes almost play like little music videos in a way, sort of showing off the music of Goblin, uh, very choreographed, very self-consciously stylish, um, not necessarily realistic, but but very um, uh, expressionist in many respects. So uh, I think the, 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 I don't want to say celebration of violence, because that suggests something that I don't think is quite accurate, but the the way of finding a kind of macabre beauty within horrific uh, sequences. Um, it's been said, for example, um, I know that, uh, that Tim Lucas has referred, for example, to how Bava in Blood and Black Lace would pan from, uh, you know, a scene of, of horrible violence to something really beautiful. So you have the girl who's killed at the beginning of the film uh, being dragged away, and then the camera pans and shows a, a, a stone cherub that's sort of passively watching the scene. It's just this sense of some kind of eerie beauty that's being found within the sequence. So the violence, the um, the murder set pieces, uh, this the sexiness too. I mean, a lot of these films are openly erotic. Uh, whether they're successful at that or not is very much in, open to interpretation. But they kind of push the envelope, and I, I think that's kind of the key thing here. Is they they tend to be over the top in that very Italian way. You know, Italians <laughs> tend to be very expressive people. Uh, I, 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 they don't tend to be very understated. So it's very different from the British school, for example, which tends to be a little bit more uh, reserved and stiff upper lip, whereas these films tend to be much more extravagant. And I think that's a, that's a big part of what makes these films very, very, either very, very interesting or very, very off-putting, depending on your point of view. And they also 
kind of maybe they didn't they weren't the first films to do this, but it, very key in a lot of them is the as you mentioned the black the hand in a black glove and the masked killer and mm-hmm. in a trench coat. I mean that figure seems to be prominent in quite a few of the films. Oh, absolutely. Well, that I mean. It didn't start there, as, as we say, but at the same time, uh, that template is set in Blood and Black Lace. Uh, specifically, you have the killer with the, um, the, uh, the, the, the black hat, the black trench coat, the black gloves. And what I found very interesting in that film was, was a very conscious decision to have him wearing a uh, almost sort of white nylon mask. And it's been remarked that uh, that can be interpreted as being like a blank screen, like a cinema screen. So you can project whatever you want to project onto it. Um, it's every bit as uh, disturbing and distinctive to me as, for example, the Michael Myers mask is in, in Halloween. Um, it, it, of course, was seen by Dario Argento, and uh, when Dario Argento came along later uh, with The Birth of the Crystal Plumage, he emulated that to a certain extent. He didn't use the, the white mask, but the same basic, you know, the hat and, and the trench coat. And to an extent, sometimes it is, if you think about it a little too much, it does get a little bit silly. Um, there's the great sort of um, audience deception at the beginning of Bird with the Crystal Plumage, which I won't say too much about because I don't want to spoil for people who haven't seen it. But if you think about it too much, it's like, why is that person dressed like that? It doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, it's not raining out. It's, it's uh, apparently a beautiful uh, Roman <laughs> summer night. So why, why is this person dressed like that? But it's not so much, again, it's not the logic, it's the effect. And uh, that was very deliberately done and actually very, very clever because it goes against audience expectations. You mentioned that finding them initially for you and for a lot of people were these bootleg tapes or difficult to find copies, or sometimes it was, I mean, my introduction to them, they were all dubbed. They were, they all had that same kind of flat dubbing to them. So, um, but that was kind of a lot of Americans' first introduction to these was kind of through that filtered, either censored and dubbed and kind of in strange forms from what their original shape was. Oh, absolutely. And some of them were really mutilated. I mean, uh, Deep Red came over to America and was cut down to, I think, 89 minutes, 90 minutes, something like that. I mean, it's a half hour footage gone. And, uh, you know, I, I remember reading the review of that film in the Leonard Moulton Film Guide, and they, they said it was stylish but nonsensical. Well, no wonder it was nonsensical. Half hours missing. <laughs> you know, So I, I don't even know if whoever reviewed it wasn't all himself, I'm sure, whoever reviewed it for that book, if they were aware of the fact that it was missing as much as it was. Uh, to see these films in really rough form, uh, sometimes... I know the first time that I saw Blood and Black Lace, for example, it was a uh, it was a VHS copy that was very very pale, and it didn't impress me as much as all that when I first saw it. It wasn't until I saw a version with really good color that I realized, oh boy, this one was really really something. Um, take away the visual quality, and you definitely lose uh, something very significant in the movie. Um, as to the dubbing, of course, at that time in Italy, really through, with some exceptions, through the 80s, uh, these films were shot, not silent, but they were shot with an, an eye towards dubbing. Um, the, there, a lot of the sound stages in Rome weren't soundproofed. Uh, if they would go on location, they didn't worry about dogs barking, planes flying overhead, things like that. Um, 
uh, the American actor Brett Halsey told me, for example, about working with Ricardo Freda and how Freda would bring his dogs to the set. And because the camera would make this loud uh, whirring noise, frequently the dogs would sit there and howl. And it took him a while to get used to that until he realized that, you know, this is just the way they do it and they're going to dub it. So, you know, just go with the flow and don't worry about it. Uh, the the English tracks that were done for these films, many of them are actually rather good. Uh, it depends on the film. There are certain films that I much prefer in Italian. One of them would be Blood and Black Lace. Um, whereas films like uh, Deep Red, for example, or Bird with the Crystal Plumage, I'm fine with those in English because the, the quality of the vocal dub on those films is very good. Plus, the English actors uh, like David Hemmings or Tony Musante did their own dubbing. So, you know, whatever works. Um, some of these films really, really suffer when you see them in English. Uh, it really makes them look very, very hokey. So that's something you have to take into account, and it's something that it, it takes a while to get used to it. Uh, it definitely took me a while to get used to that aspect. We're going to be showing a quartet of newly restored Giallo titles, and I wanted to just get you to talk a little bit about each one of them. The first one we're starting with is What Have You Done to Solange? And you had brought that one up briefly about getting it, about it being released in Germany. Uh, what do you have to say about that one? What makes that one kind of stand out? Well, uh, What Have You Done to Solange was, um, as I mentioned, it was co-produced by a German company, and so it was sold in Germany as an Edgar Wallace film. They, they said it was an adaptation of an Edgar Wallace story called The Case of the New Pin. Um, has nothing to do with the story, <laughs> of course, but um, it's a very, very interesting film. It's directed by Massimo Dallamano, who is one of the really unsung masters uh, of the genre. Uh, he didn't direct a lot of films because he died. Uh, rather young, unfortunately. Uh, he was, I think, 59 or 60 when he died in a car crash. A very gifted cinematographer. He had filmed uh, the first two Clint Eastwood westerns for Sergio Leone, and then he uh, moved on to directing uh, some of his other films. He did uh, other Jallo films as well, like uh, A Blackville for Lisa and uh, What Have They Done to Your Daughters. So he was he was pretty well-versed in this type of film. Uh, what have you done to Solange is particularly interesting because it's one of the one of the Jallo films that really has an emphasis on characters. Um, that's not always the case in these films. Sometimes they're more interested in sleazy plot elements or in graphic violence or in kind of playing head games with the viewer. This one takes the time, I think, to really establish some characters who are very complex and very interesting. And very well acted as well. It's it's got a very good cast. If you're familiar with with these films, there's some very familiar actors, all of them doing very good jobs in it. I think uh, it has a beautiful score by Ennio Morricone, and of course, uh, Dalamano being a great cinematographer in his own right, it, it is inevitably a good-looking film, uh, photographed uh, uh, by um, Aristide Mazzucchi, who's better known as Joe D'Amato. Uh, the great sort of sleaze king of Italian cinema. So uh, it's one of those great representative titles that you can show a novice and kind of give them an idea because the story is very lurid in some respects. It has some very shocking elements and sequences in it. Um, it, it could potentially be a little offensive to some viewers, I'm sure, depending on their point of view on certain topics. But it's a, it's a good, well-plotted, and uh, extremely well-directed and acted movie. 
um, it kind of packs in a lot of the different elements that make these movies really appealing. So I'd say if you haven't seen one before, that's as good a place as any to start in some respects. The next one we're showing is one of my favorite titles, and that's Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key. The titles of these giallos are, there's a lot of them that are just crazy, like All the Colors of the Dark and A Lizard in a Woman's Skin. Do you think there was something about, I mean, were they trying to do these kind of lurid headline type titles to, to lure people in? Oh, yes, there was. I mean, can you imagine a title like that on the marquee today? I'd, I'd go see it in a minute. Um, it's like so many things, you know, posters are so bland today and so are titles. Um your vice is a locked door and only I have the key is actually uh, a kind of reflexive title in the sense that it refers back to a line of dialogue in Sergio Martino's uh, first giallo, which was called the strange vice of Mrs. Ward, uh, also known as blade of the ripper. And in that film, Edwidge Fenech um, plays a character who's involved in a, a relationship with this man. Uh, it's sort of built on blood fetishism. So it's kind of a, a kinky, uh, subplot to that film, but that that line is uttered. So uh, Ernesto Gastaldi, I think, uh, the screenwriter, liked that and decided to um, recycle it as a title. And uh, so Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key uh, came out under that title. Um, the titles for these films frequently were very, it's like anything else, they were uh, influenced by popular success. So when Bird with Crystal Plumage came out, Everybody in Italy wanted to make thrillers with animals in the title or insects. So, lizard or woman skin, don't torture a duckling, uh, black belly of the tarantula, uh, iguana with the tongue of fire. I mean, <laughs> these ridiculous titles, but that's part of the charm. And again, I mean, to hear a title like that, I mean, you got to go see that, right? I mean, it's just, uh, you know, you never hear a title like that. So that's that. Yeah, definitely part of the part of the appeal. And this one also has a great score to it. Yes, Bruno Nicolai, who was the longtime collaborator of Ennio Morricone. And there's some controversy about uh, the Morricone-Nicolai uh, kind of dynamic. If you are a student of Morricone, you'll notice that uh, once he and Bruno Nicolai parted ways around 1975, uh, they, the sound of Morricone changed a little bit. Um, it got to be a little less playful, a little less experimental, a little bit more sort of serious and somber. And uh, it, it, there's good reason to believe that there was kind of a, uh, a mutual influence there. And it seems that um, depending on who you believe, either Bruno Nicolai wrote certain pieces of music that were credited to Ennio Morricone, or it was the other way around, or it could be both, uh, certainly. Uh, I think given the fact that Morricone was scoring you know, ridiculous amounts of movies, it wouldn't be shocking if every now and again uh, Nikolai stepped in and wrote an occasional piece or maybe took something out of Ennio's drawer that uh, he'd forgotten he'd written and used it himself. But uh, it's a great score, uh, one of many, many uh, Jallo scores that Nikolai wrote in the early to mid-70s. Uh, think of films like uh, Eyeball, for example, or All the Colors of the Dark or The Case of the Bloody Iris great soundtracks and uh, again that's definitely one of the big appeals for me with Jallo films is listening to the scores sometimes I listen to the scores more often than I watch the films
Well, next up, we have a Lucio Fulci film with a great title. Again, uh, you mentioned it once before, but Don't Torture a Duckling. And you mentioned that this one has a slightly different kind of feel to the setting, but this involves Catholic Church, witches, superstition. Yeah, it's a very unusual um, sort of rural, regional giallo. You don't see that very much. The only other one I can think of off the top of my head was a Avati, a Kupi Avati film called The House of the Laughing Windows. Um, very unusual to see a film set in the countryside um, amongst the kind of uh, lower class, so to speak, uh, the poor, the disenfranchised. It deals a lot with intolerance and superstition and uh, uh, the joys of, of Catholic guilt. <laughs> and uh, it is, I think, one of the most, well, it, I'll tell you right off the bat, it's one of my absolute favorite films of all time. I think it is the best film that Lucio Volci ever directed. Uh, Fulci himself would refer to it, along with a movie he did called Beatrice Cenci, as the best work he ever did. Um, I'm certainly not going to argue with Lucio Fulci, so it, it's um, another one of those films that was titled the way that it was because of the popularity of Argento's films, his early films uh, like Bird with the Crystal Plumage and uh, Four Flies on Grey Velvet, so it has that kind of animal title. Um, it's a very, very complex, very intelligent, and uh, very provocative movie. Uh, when I think of Fulci versus Argento, I tend to think of Argento as very sort of cool and aesthetic, and Fulci is very angry and foaming at the mouth, and, and this movie really gives you that sense of his passion. Um, it has a sequence in it, which I don't want to spoil for anybody who hasn't seen it, but it's, it's both horrifying and absolutely heartbreaking, and uh, every time I see it, I wince, and then it, it sort of brings a tear to my eye. It's it's one of those scenes that just um, it shows both his capacity for showing really, really nasty violence, but at the same time, uh, a character that is so pitiable and and tragic that you can't help it. It pulls at your heartstrings. So it's a great little movie. And then the last of these four films we're showing is Death Laid an Egg, which features French star Jean Louis Trontignon. Yeah, that's a weird one. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. is that is an art house giallo, if ever there was one. It is truly very bizarre. Uh, Jean-Louis Trintignant, who is one of my favorite actors, um, did three giallo films in the late 60s, and um, I know for a fact he hated at least one of them. <laughs> he referred to So Sweet, So Perverse, yes. he gets uh, He's referred to that as the worst film he's ever made. Um, I don't agree with him. I think it's actually pretty good, but I don't know what he thinks of Death Laid an Egg. Um, Death Laid an Egg is one of those movies that you tend to either really like it or really dislike it. Uh, the first time I saw it, I did not like it at all. I thought it was um, arty to the point of just being pretentious and incomprehensible. I've grown to like it a great deal. Um, it's a very, very unusual film. The uh, the film's uh, director is um, definitely not... Uh, a conventional kind of Italian journeyman. Uh, his name is Giulio Questi, uh, kind of very left-leaning uh, Marxist filmmaker. What's the matter? Just an impression, that's all. I've never seen such an expression as that one over there has in her eyes. It's real weird. I see what you mean. She's been around. No, that's not it. It was indefinable almost a capacity for cruelty, suffering and causing suffering, to degrade herself and someone else. Uh, came from the Pasolini school, and uh, 
couldn't be bothered with making a conventional thriller, but it has thriller trappings. It is a giallo, but at the same time, it is absolutely unique. And, uh, you know, the ti- well, the title there again, I mean, how many films uh, would have a title like that? It definitely makes you curious to see what it's all about. Jean-Louis Trentignon, of course, and also Gina Lola Brigida. So very interesting cast. And uh, one of those movies that, uh, whether you like it or not, I don't think you'll ever forget it. It's definitely a, a bizarre little movie. And it has mutant chickens as well. Now, what you're going to see are the designs for some new posters, which the studio prepared under my direction. Of course, the designs are my own, but the inspiration came from the president of the association. I'm trying a new method of approach, presenting a whole new manner of treating your product. In the past, we always used to think of the chicken as not much better than a country cousin instead of an integral part of society. And now we want to try to conceptualize the chicken as the principal actor in the drama of modern life. Here you see the chicken as an engineer. Here is a doctor. Here is the politician. Here is the businessman. And here as the soldier. Why not? <clears throat> Mutant chickens and just, uh, yeah, lots of ennui and, uh, you know, <laughs> people hating their lives and, and, and plotting and scheming against each other, as you would if you were raising mutant chickens. In your books, you cover Jallo, kind of the full breadth and span of it. So what were kind of the peak years of it, and when did it fall into decline? The Jallo is interesting in the sense that usually a lot of these genres died off at some point or another. And and usually how they die off is the same way. Uh, if you think back to the old universal horror films of the 30s and 40s, for example, it ended with Abbott and Costello. It ended with parody. So the spaghetti westerns, which were hugely popular, there were hundreds of them made uh, in the space of a relatively brief period of time. I mean, it's an insane number of movies were made. And of course, a lot of them weren't very good, but the best ones are, are quite brilliant. Um, they got into parodies, you know, the Trinity films, and even Mario Bava did a parody called Roy Colton Winchester Jack. So that went down that particular tunnel. They were very popular, and then they died out. The, the Jallo film really never died out. It's still kind of there. They're still being made very, very sporadically, but they're still kind of cropping up every now and again, um, especially on Italian television. Um, it all kind of started in 1963. It didn't really start to take off at all until around 1968. There was a movie called The Sweet Body of Deborah with uh, Jean Sorel and Carol Baker, which was surprisingly successful. And then Umberto Lenzi made a few films with Carol Baker and movies like uh, Orgasmo and So Sweet, So Perverse, and those were also popular. But then, of course, Dario Argento, Bird with the Crystal Plumage, 1970. So really... 1972, 1973, around that period of time, there were a tremendous amount of Jallo films made um, very, very quickly, very rapidly. Uh, these were not films that were designed to be really taken all that seriously in many respects, at least most of them. Um, they were kind of product that were being churned out. So you'll you'll have some good ones and you'll have some bad ones. But, um, you know, obviously people like Argento and Fulci and, and Bava, although Bava didn't really follow it through much uh, into the 70s, he kind of went down different avenues at that time. But I think they took their work a little bit more seriously than some of these other directors did. Um, they were very popular for a period of time. A lot of uh, uh, people went to see them. Uh, they even cross-pollinated with other genres. So there were some spaghetti westerns that were kind of giallo films as well, and uh, Polizioteschi that were giallo films as well. 
the decline, basically. Um, I think, in a way, 1982, you saw the release of Lucio Fulci's New York Ripper, which is reviled by many people. I think it's a great film myself, but it is um, very, very controversial for obvious reasons. If you've ever seen it, it is exceptionally nasty and very deliberately so. Um, but also at that same year, Dario Geno made Tenebrae, which is kind of the great uh, self-reflexive giallo. It's a giallo about jally. And in a way, it was almost like there wasn't much left to be done with it beyond that. But that also coincided with the general decline of Italian films because of television. Basically, that's what happened. In, in television, kind of took over as the popular medium. People stopped going to the movies. Uh, more and more people stayed home and started watching movies on television. Um, theatrical releases couldn't really keep up, so a very booming industry that was producing hundreds of films a year went down to producing very, very little. Um, Dario Argento was one of the very few directors who managed to weather the storm because he had sort of built up his own business empire. But uh, even he felt the heat eventually, and his movies in recent years have become very low budget, whereas at one time he... You know, he, he commanded a pretty sizable budget and schedule to make his movies. So basically, as the 80s wore on into the 90s, just less and less being made theatrically. Uh, so it never really died, per se. They're still being made very sporadically. But definitely, I'd say the early 80s is where you really saw the, the kind of the end of the classic period. Now, you mentioned that Giallo kind of led to the American slasher films. So what's kind of been the influence of Giallo on American cinema or on cinema around the world? Well, interestingly, um, the, the the third and final volume of So Deadly, So Perverse is actually about um, non-Italian Giallo films. So that's not to say that all the films that I'm covering in it uh, should be classified as Jallo films. As far as I'm concerned, the only real authentic Jallo films are Italian movies. Uh, but these movies all show signs of the influence, and uh, they come from all over. You've got films from Asia, from Turkey, from India, from uh, America, Canada, Great Britain, and so forth and so on. So um, they definitely, at their peak period, when there was a lot of these films being made, the Germans got in on it, the Spanish got in, especially the Spanish got in on it. There were a lot of films that really felt very much like Jallo films, but they were Spanish films and are quite the same. Um, yeah, the influence as Jallo films kind of started to experiment a little bit more with more extreme violence. Uh, Bava had made a film called A Bay of Blood, also known as Twitch of the Death Nerve, which is one of my all-time favorite titles. And it basically was the template for movies like Friday the 13th. You have a group of, of characters, including the usual kind of horny teens, uh, gathered together in, in the woods in a remote location, and somebody's picking them off one by one. Um, Sergio Martino made a movie called Torso, which also was definitely kind of uh, forecasting what would happen. You get, you get into a more kind of um, overtly sexual uh, kind of scenes in that film, and also a more and more graphic gore. Um, it all kind of culminated in the late 70s with uh, John Carpenter doing Halloween, and John Carpenter was explicitly paying homage to Dario Argento. Uh, he said that, that Halloween was kind of his tribute to Dario Argento because he, um, he loved his films. And so 
even if you listen to the Halloween theme, it's very reminiscent of the Deep Red theme. And, of course, the Deep Red theme is also reminiscent of uh, Tubular Bells, which was in The Exorcist. So, again, it all there's all these kind of influences around. Um, they, they, as the slasher film took over and became more popular, uh, the Jallo films started to feel a little bit more and more like slasher films. So a movie like The New York Ripper, you could classify that as a slasher movie for sure, but it's also a Jallo. It's got the usual tropes. Then something like Michele Suave's movie Stage Fright from 1987, uh, you could classify it either way. I, I put it in my book as a Jallo. Um, in some respects, I, I questioned myself on that because it's not really a mystery. You know who the killer is. It's more about, you know, how he's doing it as opposed to who it is. But it, it fits into the same basic template. So, again, it's it's sort of the snake that eats its own tail. It's all these influences all, all over the place, and uh, it kind of becomes muddied and indistinct after a certain point. So is your third volume out yet? No, it is finished uh, as far as the writing is concerned. Um, it's been submitted to the publisher, but it's a matter of when they get around to <laughs> to putting it out, so to speak. Um, I don't know if it'll be out this year. I kind of doubt it. Uh, so probably look for it in 2018. All right. Well, thank you very much for talking about Giallo. It's a genre that I love, and I'm so happy to be able to share some of these films here in San Diego. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for asking me. That was Troy Howarth, whose third volume of So Deadly, So Perverse will be available soon. And finally, I get to speak with Rachel Nisbet, author of a blog dedicated to giallo and Italian genre cinema, Hypnotic Crescendos. I felt the need to interview her when I saw her Twitter profile, and she described herself as a gialli fiend. I asked if she remembered the first giallo she ever saw. Um, yeah, I do. It was just over 10 years ago, and I must have been about um, around 17 at the time. And I was introduced to the genre and by my ex-boyfriend. Uh, so he gave me a copy of, copy of Tenebrae, and it sat on my shelf for about a year, because um, he usually just ignored his movie recommendations. But then one evening, I had a huge fight with my parents, and in typical teenage fashion, I stormed upstairs and decided to watch a horror film. So I grabbed Tenebrae. I've read all your books, Mr. Neal. The book deals with a murder committed with an old-fashioned open razor, right? This girl, too, was killed with a razor, and your book's pages stuffed into her mouth. Can I ask you something? If someone is killed with a Smith & Wesson revolver, do you go and interview the president of Smith & Wesson? I'm not even thinking I would like it, and I was just completely blown away by it. Um, I'd never seen a horror film like it. It kind of eschewed all the tropes that um, I associated with the genre. And I was just in awe of how stylized it was and the use of bright lighting, um, the brutalist architecture and the fashion and all those wonderful set pieces. And I loved the literary element of it as well and the final twist. Um, so the very next day I grabbed my sister and we went and watched it all again and just kind of fell in love with the genre from there and sat at all the different directors, the rest of Argento, Shelley, um, and Fulci and Bava's and Martino's films. And that just continued over the next 10 years, really. So when you watched that, did you have any idea of what Giallo was at that time or what that kind of film was going to be like? Um, no, I didn't really have any idea. I mean, I'd previously watched um, Suspiria, so I kind of knew of Dario Argento and a wee bit about Italian horror, like I'd heard of um, zombie flesh eaters, but I didn't know anything about Giallo or the conventions of it. Um, I didn't even really know much about slashers or um, other types of horror films other than the kind of um, obvious entries that most people know at that age. So it was quite like a revelation for me because I was just completely new to it. What was it about that film? Do you remember anything in spe specifically about that film that just hooked you? Was it from the very start of it or was there a particular like set piece in it that grabbed you? 
And I think just from the start, really, it just kind of took hold. It wasn't, you know, um, kind of what I usually associated with a horror film, and especially like the way it was shot and very bright light. And um, it had quite a creeping atmosphere and just the way that, you know, the synths are used in it and um, the use of colour and architecture, it was just very unusual to me and it just kind of instantly um, grabbed me for the rest of the film. Now, this is for radio or for broadcast, so we can't show any images from Giallo, which is such a shame. But talk a little bit about that visual style. I mean, we just showed... Blood and Black Lace here in a nice 4K restoration on a gorgeous screen. And it was, like, better than 3D. I mean, those colors just popped. The the visual style is so distinctive, and I think that's the main reason why people fall in love with the genre as opposed to um, horror films from other countries, because there's um, a very distinct Italian style um, when it comes to Zhao. And people kind of associate that Blood and Black Lace, the very colorful lighting, um, Again, Tenebrae, the very stark lighting. So lighting is always kind of a crucial element of the films. But also, because um, these films are kind of from the early, seven, um, early 70s, late 60s, um, they have such striking modernist designs. So the sets themselves are filled with just um, this wonderful um, modernist furniture and wallpaper, and everyone's decked out in these incredible fashions. So it's really visceral from, you know, in terms of, like, um, film techniques, as well as um, set dressing and all that kind of thing. Um, and as you said, it just looks amazing on the big screen and there's so much for the eye. So although the murder mystery elements of the genre are really important and engaging, I think, yeah, the, the distinctive style is what draws people in a lot of the time. Well, another thing that seems key to a lot of these is the music tracks, the scores. They, especially with like Dario Argento, I mean, these scores were just so riveting and can stand on their own. Um, yeah, no, the music's a really crucial um, element. I'm not really an expert in any means on soundtracks. I know um, other people that are a lot more well-versed in them, but um, there's quite a lot of variety, especially like the Ennio Morricone scores. I think they're, you know, something really special, as said from, um, as you said, from Argento's Animal Trilogy, just the way the music's used and um, how Morricone um, develops um, suspense through them. And then you've got the more kind of bossa nova-style um, soundtracks with, like, Rosario Tony and um, Bruno Nicolai and... Then you've got like the the Goblin scores, the prog rock, and um, the synth element, and some of the later seventies ones and early eighties films. If you define them as shallow, so yeah, music has a big part um, in building that kind of atmosphere that's so distinctive to the genre. Now, another thing I think for people who are unfamiliar with Giallo, and, and part of what I hope to do with the podcast is to hopefully get some new converts over to it, but part of it too is that. It has this kind of weird hallucinogenic fever dream quality to it. These films are not your typical, like, straightforward linear narratives and whodunit kind of crime fiction, even though they have those elements. But there's this weird kind of just crazy quality to them. Is that part of what's appealing to them? Yeah, no, that's certainly part of the appeal and that kind of level of um, surrealness and um, it's quite unsettling and jarring because it feels like something that kind of, like it plays with the murder mystery um, narrative and it feels straightforward, as you said, but then uh, these surreal dream sequences take place and um, people talk in cryptic ways and things aren't quite as they seem. Um, and that's really like everything's kind of um, dialed up to 11. So you get this really strange quality to the films, which kind of um, makes them more engaging than, yeah, I said, if it was a tra- traditional um, murder mystery. So I think people really um, enjoy that element of them as well. I certainly do, um, especially, you know, like something that's like Don't Torture a Duckling, which is 
quite classic in its setting, um, a rural setting, but has all these very strange, um, almost surreal-like moments in it and a lot of hysteria and insanity in them. Now, a lot of times um, as a woman, I get asked about these films saying, like, how can you watch these films? They seem so misogynistic because so often it's young women or beautiful young women who are being murdered in particularly gruesome ways. But do you ever get that question? And and how do you kind of put giallo films into that context or defend them against charges of being misogynistic? Yeah, I mean, I get this all the time. Um, I get a lot of messages on Twitter and social media and people kind of go like, why do you like these films? You're young women. I think the culture um, um, at the moment, it's very much, you know, like um, you're supposed to be very um, careful about the media that you consume and you should really be pushing for um, pro-female media and all that kind of thing. But to be honest, I kind of find the misogyny debate um, quite lazy. Um, Sometimes I think people trot out the same... um, rhetoric about the giallo and how misogynistic it is and I don't find that to always be the case and I think horror films in general kind of suffer from that misogynistic tag and people don't really like um, delve into them and really consider why they might actually be quite um, empowering to some women Um, and I think uh, you can't really um, view films from the 1970s and 60s through modern day um, a modern day lens anyway especially from the Italian culture because I mean that's different from my own culture I'm sure it's are different from yours. Um, but I find there to be a lot of powerful female characters in the giallo. Um, one of my favourites is, um, one of my favourite actresses is Neves Navarro, um, a.k.a. Susan Scott, um, who's known for her work with um, director Luciano Arcoli. And she always played really feisty roles and she'd be kicking out against men. And she, and like, for example, in, in Death Walks at Midnight, she'd be throwing, throwing abuse at men and throwing rocks through the window. And you know, she wasn't your typical kind of damsel in distress character. She really owned kind of who she was and did what she wanted. I always found that quite empowering. And then again, her character in um, Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion, um, she plays this sidekick character who's really sexually promiscuous and goes out drinking into nightclubs, but, you know, who don't see her get killed off for that. And she's not judged for her proclivities. It's shown as, you know, a good thing that she's like that. And I think there's there's lots of characters like that in the genre. I know there 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 are a lot of women who are killed, and that is problematic. I'm not going to sit here and say it's not problematic as a genre, but I think it's there's a little bit more to it. And I think, um, like with the likes of a film like New York Ripper, I I don't necessarily think that's misogynistic, um, as people always argue that it is. And for me as a woman, I I I enjoy the genre, and I don't feel like I shouldn't because of um certain issues with it. Well, it seems like also since it. It does come from Italy, which is a country that's very deeply Catholic at its core, that films mm-hmm. that deal with sexuality in kind of a rebellious or way, uh, you know, kind of break with some traditions and stuff that, that can be that can feel kind of progressive at the time that they were coming out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, to talk about the films that you're showing, like um, What Have You Done to Solange, I mean, that kind of masterfully... Um, shows the savagery of teenage girls and shows them in quite a realistic light. I mean, I went to an all-girls school and it's kind of like uncanny, some of the stuff that goes on in that, but also has like a fairly nuanced, sympathetic look at, you know, teenage women and uh, some of the hardships that they they go through. And I think, yeah, there's, there's something quite groundbreaking about that just to show female sexuality. And it's not always in that um, Catholic kind of, no, this is wrong and you shouldn't behave like that. I think some of the films have quite a sympathetic view, or at least they show that the world's changing. And again, you find that in Don't Torture a Duckling and um, Patrizia's character, played by Barbara Boucher, who's 
kind of demonized by the local villagers for wearing short skirts. But I think Filchi was always saying, you know, society is changing. It's that modern versus the traditional. Mm-hmm. Well, and another thing, which is not necessarily talking positive role models for women, but uh, one interesting thing is that there were frequently, or not frequently, but there were on a number of key occasions, female serial killers in these films, which, you know, something they talk about now that they don't, there's not that kind of diversity in that respect. But those giallos, frequently the women were kind of the ones pushing those, the, the narratives forward in that sense. Yeah, and they were orchestrating um, kind of the events of the films. And I mean, like the kind of big famous shadow, The Bird of the Crystal Plumage, um, plays on your perceptions of who's the victim and who's um, the killer in these, these scenarios. And it kind of plays upon your um, um, assumptions of that to, to deliver a brilliant twist at the end. And there are quite a few films that do that. And I think, yeah, like as a modern audience, it doesn't maybe seem that shocking to have a female killer. But I mean, it must have been quite shocking at the time to kind of reveal women um, in that way. And I know in some ways you're saying, like, oh, it doesn't portray women in a positive light, and obviously, obviously it doesn't if they're killers, but it shows that women aren't necessarily, you know, these like pretty young things that like play things, and they're not um, as innocent as they might appear. It's, you know, they can be either or, or a mix of the two. I wanted to get you to talk a little bit about the four films that we're going to be showing, just so people can get a little preview of them. So the first one is, uh, what have you done to Solange? And you mentioned that this is set in a girls' school. So what did you find memorable about that film? Um, What I find memorable about what have you done to Solange is um, that it's a lot more um, sympathetic than a lot of Jali. It really kind of goes into the characters and it's got quite a bittersweet ending and the motivations of the characters and the plot and how things develop, I think, is, is um, kind of fascinating. And characters seem almost like cardboard cutouts or tropes at the start and then they develop and you kind of see softer sides to them. And I think just, I, I don't want to spoil it for anyone that's not seen it, but I think just the ending and how that comes about is really powerful. And it's, it's probably the most um, emotional shadow for me, the one that's um, resonated with me emotionally the most. What have you done to Solange? Well, she killed him the same way as the others. Have you any clues, Inspector? This is the third murder in three weeks. Is it true, sir, that Rosania is having an affair with Colonel Pickles? He just isn't a killer and far less a sex maniac. Those girls know what it's all about, for sure. Only 16 and surrounded by... Secret boyfriends, petty jealousies, orgies, and lesbian games. Now, the next one we're showing has one of my favorite titles, and it's Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have a Key. These titles are just, like, I adore them. For kind of <laughs> just out of this world, yeah. It's like the title alone would draw you in. Yeah, exactly. And, and the title actually comes from um, a, a line, well, not a line, something written down, in um, Sergio Martino's um, 1971 show, The Strange Face of Mrs. Ward, it's written down on, on a note, and I think it's in some flowers. Um, so I think he just went on and developed the film with that title because it was such a brilliant line. And does the story of this live up to its title? Uh, yeah, no, it's a fin- and fantastic story. It's interesting because it's actually based on um, an Edgar Allan Poe story, The Black Cat, and it's it's kind of a strange cross between that story and a show. So... Uh, you can see the key motif in how that title actually works. But, I mean, it is a really, really good example of a shadow. I think this is probably the most traditional of the ones you're showing, arguably. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
Did you, is there any like set piece scene in, in that film that you remember? I think all of the, um, all the stuff involving the, the Mary Queen of Scots costume is quite um, memorable for me. There always seems to be these kind of set pieces in the Giallo films, like whether it's the murders or something else, but it always seems like they're these very carefully orchestrated and constructed sequences that are just kind of hypnotic. Yeah, these wonderful, extravagant kind of set pieces that, yeah, just get stuck in your brain. They're so, like, wonderfully executed. Uh, it's definitely, you know, again, another um, reason why people love the genre so much because the films, you know, tick along really nicely and they're just punctuated by these amazing uh, artistic um, bits of violence. Well, and that that seems to be key to them, too. I mean, this sense of the acts of violence seem to be these kind of artistic things. It's not merely... It's not merely there just to be an act of violence. It's almost like to find the beauty in it or to find something perverse about it that we need to focus on. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, the art of horror. And it's, it's interesting that the films are so stylistic in terms of, yeah, like I said before, the camera work, the interiors, the architecture, the fashion, and, and the violence is just so style, um, stylistic. Um, you don't always find that in horror films where it's almost like kind of gross-out horror. and In the shadow, it's always... Yeah, very masterfully done. Now, the next film we're showing is a Lucio Fulci film, and you mentioned the title earlier, but it's Don't Torture a Duckling, which, again, is another yeah. great title. And yep. <laughs> this one's a little different in, in in kind of its setting, but it's really one of the best, I think, that the genre has to serve up. If you're going to name kind of your top five, I think Don't Torture a Duckling would um, definitely be in there. And unlike some of the other titles, which are a bit more frothy, I think Don't Torture a Duckling has a really strong and powerful message and social commentary and critique in it, especially directed towards the Catholic Church. I mean, as you talked about earlier, Catholicism is kind of a main component of these films, but especially in Don't Torture a Duckling, it's critical to the film and it's quite damning, to be honest, yeah. of the Catholic Church in Italy at the time. And is there anything that stood out in, in that film for you? I think there's a, a certain sequence. Again, I don't know how much I can say. I don't really want to, I want <laughs> to spoil what? it for anyone that's, that's not seen it. That's true. There's a certain uh, sequence that's um, involving Florinda Balkan's character um, that's quite harrowing, but strangely hypnotic. And that can be said about a lot of the films, I think. Yeah, it's definitely got that um, surreal element that we talked about earlier. I think even though it's in that traditional rural setting, there's just these kind of off-the-wall moments and it's going to have to be seen to be believed. Well, it's kind of a combination of that feeling you get driving past an accident where you need to watch, but then it's like driving past that accident and needing to watch, but it's filtered through a dream you're having at the same time. <laughs> so it's like yeah, removed. That's a really good a really good um, description. Yeah, it's almost like a surreal kind of grotesqueness that permeates the film. It's very dreamlike. Yeah, they they frequently feel like, you know, when you come out of them, you feel like a little heady, like you've been on some sort of drug or something or just woken up from some really strange dream. <laughs> yeah, and then you kind of want to go back and watch it all again and figure out like the bits that seemed a bit off kilter at the time. And sometimes there's no way to figure it out. <laughs> Yeah, the news right way, that doesn't quite add up, but then you just kind of go, oh, it's a shadow. That's kind of the point is that there's massive potholes in them sometimes. <laughs> but yeah, some are a bit more um, well-constructed than others. But um, Lucio Filci's um, other film, um, Mother Shadow, A Lizard in a Woman's Skin, quite similar with the dreamlike mm -hmm. element and the surreal atmosphere. They're quite good to watch together. And the last film that we're going to be showing is another strange title, which is Death-Laden Egg, which has the gorgeous Gina Lola Brigida in it. 
Yeah, that's a, an Elio um, Kesty film, and it's it's an it's a late sixties. I'm offering. I think it was released in sixty eight, but I'm made in sixty seven. Um, but Death Laid an Egg is absolutely bonkers. I kind of consider it to be like a Gonzo Jalo. Um, it has quite a lot of experiment, cinematic kind of components to it, especially um, the opening scenes, which are very odd. It's kind of all these different scenes intercut with one another um, to create quite an artistic, strange uh, sequence. Um, but it, I really love Death Laid an Egg because it's also an unusual, exa- an, an unusual example so much that... Um, it's got this strange, almost like futuristic feel to it in places. Um, there's like a high-tech chicken farm where these boneless chickens are bred um, for for meat, and it's very, very odd that whole um, component. And that's played against this backdrop of backstabbing and blackmailing and strange twists and red herrings. For you, do you have a like a top three giallo? If somebody wants to explore the genre beyond these four films, do you have like a top three that you would recommend? Um, yeah, for someone getting into the genre, it's so hard to pick because I have so many favourites. But um, I think bar the four films, a, a really good um, top three would be like The Strange, Vice of Mrs. Ward, then um, Deep Red, or maybe The Bird of the Crystal Plumage. But I think I'd, I'd go with Deep Red for your uh, you know, definitive Argento Jello. And then for a third one, I do want to pick another Fulci because you've already got one on your list. So I was going to say a, a Lizard in a Woman's Skin maybe is the third one. Well, there's um, no reason why you can't have two Fulci, I don't think. Yeah, we can have two Fulci. I think, you know, he needs more credit for Jalo because everyone knows him for um, for Jalo because everyone knows him for his zombie films. But I think his Jalo starting to get the credit it deserves. So I'd, I'd recommend people kind of delve into that. Oh, actually, yeah, no. And Sergio Mar- Martino's film, as I said, The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward. I think he's another definitive director that you need to check out if you're new to the genre. Of course, this makes me want to extend this film series like for another few months and add all these other titles in. I know there's so many you can add. There's so much choice. <laughs> now, you came to these films when you were a teenager, and you're still mm-hmm. young now. How do these films? How do these films hold up for? Because I'm a, I'm older, and I I saw some of these films like when they were first coming out, you know, in the 70s and in the, the late 60s. But for you, as a, a younger person coming to them, do they hold up? Are are they something that are are laughable sometimes and is that okay or how does that play for you you know somebody who's grown up with these modern slasher films and you know seeing these giallo now um well it's a really interesting debate and it's something that a lot of people kind of discuss in in the giallo community um even though i'm quite young i've never really found them something to to be laughed at i mean there's funny elements and some intentionally funny elements and then you know, there's some moments of, you know, props and various things that just don't look very good and they kind of get a wee chuckle. But um, I never really thought they were that funny. I think they hold up. Um, stylistically, they're wonderful. And the plots do hold up, I think, to modern viewing. And I, I don't really find it like something to watch and laugh at. I know a lot of people like to go to old films and like laugh at the fashions or laugh at some of the kind of problematic things that men might say or do to women. But no, I think myself and a lot of other people do really just appreciate them for what they are and you kind of just bear in mind that it's from a different um, era and kind of adjust some of your expectations or viewpoints um, to suit. But I, I do know there's a lot of um, events where people like to go and laugh at the films and things, so it's, it's, it really just depends on the person, I think. That was Rachel Nisbet, author of the blog Hypnotic Crescendos. 
Giallo Affair film series runs through October at the Digital Gym Cinema. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please recommend it to a friend. That's the best way for the audience to grow. And consider leaving a review on iTunes. That truly helps raise the visibility of the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can also support the podcast with a financial donation at kpbs.org slash feedthejunkie. Thanks for listening to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.